money can't buy life. Bob Marley. I'm so bored with it all. Winston Churchill. Give my love to my family and friends. Ted Bundy. You may roast this goose, but a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. That is John Huss, one of the morning stars of the pre-Reformation, about a hundred years or so before Martin Luther did his thing in the Reformation, and and we are what we are as a result. Now, God be with you, my dear children. I have breakfast with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ. Robert the Bruce. Why do I share these things with you? All of these are last words of these men. Of Bob Marley, Winston Churchill, Ted Bundy, John Huss, Robert the Bruce. These are their last words, or at least the last words that were recorded anywhere that they have said. Why do I share these things with you? Why is it important? Last words matter. The last word on anything to anyone matters. There is a reason why we give men who die a noble death and a dishonorable one the right to this. Men that are executed or men that have lived their their lives to the most noble degree, they get last words. We ask them of their final words. One that I didn't include in here is Karl Marx. Karl Marx said last words are for idiots who who didn't say enough during their life. And you see how he lived his life. The most noble, charismatic leaders of history have died with people at their bedside, attempting to hear the last word of their beloved. So too has many heinous a criminal, like Ted Bundy, who I just read from you, have been given the opportunity to say things like I just read to you a moment ago, just minutes before their eventual death. If death is indeed the great leveler, then it creates equality among even the most vile and the most revered. Therefore, we should take heed to what people say in their last moments. Now, I want to be clear here. Paul has a moment like this. Paul is not dying in our text right now. That much is very clear. He's going to go on. We have another about a little less than a third of the book of Acts to go. And so I want to be clear, Paul isn't dying. However, he would, this is going to be the last words that he say to these elders apart from his written word. He will not be face to face with the people of Ephesus and the, and the region of Ephesus again. He would later write to the church, much of the New Testament is devoted to this church, to Ephesus. We have a ton of resources available to us that are directed at this church and their leaders. First and second Timothy, the book of Ephesus, the beginning part of Revelation. There is a ton of information that we have about the people of Ephesus, but he would never again see them in person after this. In our text, he calls these church leaders, these presbyteros to him in Miletus. He gave these elders in the church his last words to them. He wanted them to remember finally what he's saying in these words. Remember this. I'm going to go. You're not going to see me again. Remember these words. And in these last words, we see a few things. This morning, I want to focus on two main points, and we'll have points to follow. First, we see the exemplary life of Paul. Exemplary life of Paul a life that we should, in in fact, try to emulate, the exemplary life of Paul. And second, we'll see the pain of gospel goodbyes. The pain of gospel goodbyes. Okay, first though, the exemplary life of Paul. In these verses, we get to see Paul's life and practice among these these elders at the church at Ephesus. 
These are, in fact, leaders of the church. May not be one singular church. There's a great possibility that, that there were a number of churches in the surrounding area that Paul and, and some of these men planted. And so all of these church elders are coming. He calls for them, and they come and meet him in Miletus, and he, he gives them this speech. The first thing we should note about Paul's words here is that they are categorically different from almost anything we've heard from him before. This is said in not a mixed company of believers and unbelievers where he is preaching the gospel and commending the church, right? That's not what he's doing here. These are explicitly just believers. He's talking to Christians and in fact, church elders. So I don't want the context to be lost to us in that. There's no mixed company of believers and unbelievers. He's not preaching the gospel for the purposes of evangelism. He's preaching the gospel for the purposes of assurance and, and confirmation and encouragement. Therefore, we must think about the way in which his syntax, his format of words is different in this passage than it has been in passages before. Paul here paints a portrait of his life in these verses. He is painting a portrait, a self-portrait in his words of the life that he lived among the church of Ephesus. He's going to tell about what he put his hands to, what he said, what he did, all of the above. And in this portrait, we see an exemplary life of a faithful brother that is worth emulation. And we see a few things in that life. First, we see servant. Then we'll see a humble yet bold preacher. And then we'll see a man who is faithful even in the face of death. But first, Paul is indeed a servant. First and foremost, that is what he wanted to do. He wanted to serve the church. Verse 19 of our text, Paul tells us that that is what... That is what he, he did and who he is. He is a servant of the Lord. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul serves. Paul, in serving and ministering to the church of the first century, knows that it is ultimately the Lord Jesus that he is serving. This sounds similar to the opposite, almost, of what happened to him on the road to Damascus prior to now. In Acts 9, it says that Paul was thrown to the ground and a voice called to him and said, Saul, Saul, which was his name back then, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul asked this voice, who is this? Who, who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So you see, Saul was persecuting Christ by persecuting the church. And here in our text, Paul has been serving the church and therefore he acknowledges, I ain't just serving you, I'm serving Christ. Pay close attention throughout the scriptures of the association placed between Christ and his church. It is intimate and it is spiritually connected. We could spend an entire sermon or 12 on the connection between Christ and his church and the, the closeness and association there. But for now, know this, to love Jesus is to love his church. To hate his church is not love for Christ, but it is hate. But rather, you cannot love the bridegroom and hate the bride. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let's move on to what Paul is actually saying here. Paul exemplified what Christ himself did in his service. Christ said in Mark 10, 45, that he came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Paul, in the very first words he's communicating to, to them here, he's saying, I served the Lord among you. How was Paul serving the Lord? And by extension, his church? Well, he did this through preaching primarily. He was a humble yet bold preacher. That's a point number two. Humble yet bold preacher. He was bold. 
Paul was bold as a lion. In verses 22 and 21, 25, 27, and 31 of our passage this morning, Paul emphasizes the fact that he did not shrink away from declaring the gospel and that he proclaimed the truth of the scriptures to them. Paul reminds the leaders of the church at Ephesus of his ministry to the church and his commitment to preaching the word of God. This was primary for Paul. Paul triumphed preaching. He triumphed the word. He triumphed its influence and profitability among his people. This is what Paul did. This is what Paul was about. Verse 20 and 27 state that he did not shy away or shrink back from the preaching of God's word. He made no apologies for what God's word had said. He declared it boldly and destroyed arguments of those who desired to raise up lofty opinions against the knowledge of God. He destroyed these by the word. He was bold. He did not shy away. We've seen for ourselves, brothers and sisters, we've seen for ourselves Paul's boldness in cities like Athens and Corinth and even in Ephesus, where his words in Ephesus started a literal riot. The result of his words in the ministry of the word started a riot. In in verse 27, he states that he did not shy away from declaring the full counsel of God. I'm sure there were many nights like the ones we read about uh, last week with with the the brother, his name's uh, escaping me, uh, who fell out the window. Eutychus, that's it. Thank you, love. Eutychus. I want to say Eusebius, but that's another guy from church history. Uh, Eutychus, I'm sure there were many nights like this that didn't end up with a, a man falling out of third story window and getting raised from the dead to go back in and continue to learn. But what did happen were many, many nights of preaching, late nights of, of laboring over the, the scriptures, over the Old Testament, imparting the words of Christ to these, to these men. There were many nights like this where Paul went late into the evening because brothers simply wanted to learn more about the whole counsel of God. Paul obliged. He did not shy away from doing so. He wasn't afraid of obscure passages in the Old Testament that talk about murder, that talk about espionage, that talk about difficulty. Paul taught the whole counsel of God. And in so doing, he actually is, even in his words here, adding to that because of his state as an apostle, because of how the Holy Spirit has used, uh, was used by Christ and his apostles in the first century. Paul declared the whole counsel of God. Paul was happy to serve in this capacity. This was his first love. Christ was his first love and the communication of Christ and his word was the thing he wanted to serve the church first in. He was especially gifted in his ability to teach and preach. With a natural inclination also comes opportunity for pride and arrogance. All of us are good at a few things, right? All of us have traits among us that we are good in. What comes immediately after showing off some of those maybe little good traits are is opportunities for us to be arrogant, opportunities for us to be prideful, and opportunities for us to not give God his due. Luckily, we have a man in Paul who's attempting to resemble his own Lord by being a man of humility, So yes, Paul is a bold preacher, but he's also a humble one. Paul was humbled and ministered to the people of Ephesus through tears. We see in verse 19 that he served and ministered to them through tears. Now, Paul was a humble preacher. George Whitfield was a similar guy. I shared this with a, a, a couple people prior to now. 
Um, but George Whitfield was a British preacher and evangelist in the mid-1700s who had an incredibly popular ministry in England and then uh, came across the ocean to America and continued to have an even more popular uh, evangelistic sort of revivalist, itinerant preacher uh, uh, ministry, though he was an incredible preacher, preached the, the word of God. He's been described at times as a spellbinder, brilliant in his preaching, counted as the greatest speaker of his day, politician, churchgoer, or otherwise. He was an incredibly gifted speaker. He, was, he communicated the glory of God in ways that people could really understand and grab hold of. Whitfield had developed a technique for handling such compliments uh, that, such as, that was great, Pastor. You did such a great job there. That was an amazing sermon. Well done. He would always come up to, to them, and after hearing something like, you did such a good job, he would reply with the same sort of mantra every time. He would say, I know it. The devil told me just as I was stepping down from the pulpit how good a job I did. Brothers and sisters, do not be fooled by pride. False humility, also to be put off. But all of us are good at something, and it's really easy for us to take the good things that God has created us to be good at and spin them and take them and poison them from the well of our own flesh. Do not fall victim to pride. The devil is ready to tell you how good a job you've done. In humility, remember the Lord. This sort of humility is exemplified by Paul followed by Whitfield and should strive for us. Maybe you're not a preacher or a teacher. There are dozens of opportunities for us each day to embrace pride or to embrace humility, whether through accommodations in our workplace, reassurance in our home or efforts in our studies, our efforts in the ministry of this church or others. We are thrust into opportunities to give God glory or to fail to do so. Let us together seek to obey James 4 by humbling ourselves before the Lord and put to death the pride that is in us because that is opposed by him and endeavor to receive the grace of God that's found in humility. Paul did this. Paul in our passage, this reeks of humility. It reeks of God did an incredible thing from this man and yet this man only counts himself as a servant through tears with these people. All he did, his faithful serving and his bold teaching, his unapologetic declaration, the humble leadership, he did so out of a love for Christ and his church. He wanted to serve because he loved it. He loved the church because he, know, he knows that Christ loved the church. There may not be anything else. Uh, um, he, I'm sorry, he loved the church. Here in our passage, he states his deep affection for these brothers and for uh, Christ and the churches that they lead, as well as his honest and clear need to go to Jerusalem. He states to them very clearly what the Lord is showing them. We're going to get into that here in just a, a moment. But Paul is, is he's, what we see here is he is stating to them his intent, but also remembering what he's done among them. And this work, this service is not just one of a scholar lecturing theology. That's not all that he did. We see all through this passage, he worked with his hands. He, he was not longing for anything because he kept himself preoccupied with work. He went from house to house. He preached in the public square. He preached at, at uh, various locations that he went outside and he helped to plant more works. Paul was not just some scholar coming into their church, lecturing on theology, shaking hands on the way out. He was among them. He was with them. He was of them. His heart was with them. We see no, we see no other mention of his tears and tears that he is 
head. He doesn't mention his own tears hardly anywhere else in scripture apart from this passage right here. There may be nothing to that, but I also think it is communicating to us the deep love, emotional, spiritual desire that he has and that he feels so connected to these brothers. He is not, at least by the picture that we get of him in the New Testament, what some might call an overly emotional man. He's kind of stoic at times. He's bold in the face of people. He's emotional, yes. He is a caring person. He's empathetic. But the tears that he says he's shed here do not have a similar similar description anywhere else in the New Testament. He loved these brothers. He shed tears among them. He was, his heart was with them. He knew the people of Ephesus and surrounding so much so that he knew and felt what they felt. He was hurting for what they were hurting. His heart was with them and theirs was, was with him. They all had different lives. They all had different responsibilities, but there was a shared heart for one another among the people of Ephesus and among these brothers that he did so much work with. There was one shared heart for one another that cut to the innermost parts of the, the strongest of men as Paul, as Paul was. He lived and he served with them with all humility and with tears through trials, through difficulty, through celebration as people were coming to know Christ. Paul was with them in heart and in body. He lived and worked among them as he states in verse 34 and 35 of our passage that his hands ministered to his necessities and of those whom he was with. He gave charitably. He loved to help people who were in need. God was blessing him through the preaching of the gospel and through the work that he was doing with his hands, which like past passages we've studied was most likely tent making. That's what he was good at. And so Paul was being blessed. He wanted to continue to, to bless others. And through that, he really came to care for these people. He lived with them. He, he worked with them. He laughed with them. He shared drinks with them. Paul worked hard and he did so in their midst. He did not recluse from the church, but he pressed in and threw himself in the midst of the ministry. A few things in, in life will, will let you get to know someone better than spending time with them. Time and time and time again, whether that be through work or genuine friendship or common interest, whatever it may be, few things, if anything, will let you truly get to know someone like spending time with them. Paul spent time with these people, brothers and sisters. Day in and day out, he was with them. How can this apply to our context? We will never know one another like Paul knew these men or as they knew him unless we put in the time around one another and we care for one another, and we bear one another's burdens. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who, who weep. That only comes from actually knowing and spending time with one another. Paul knew these men away from the gatherings. Though they were all there, they gathered. Paul knew them away from here, but he knew them from house to house. He knew them as he worked. He knew them as he preached. It wasn't just the gatherings that he knew these people from. It was in house to house, as we see in verse 20. He worked with them, ate with them, helped with them, helped them with repairs on their homes. He harvested their crops. He spoke with their children. He engaged with their hobbies. He traveled with their leaders. Paul was with them in every area of life. We should seek to know one another likewise. We're not gonna spend every moment of every waking day with us, with each other. I fully understand that. 
But if there isn't a deep desire to know and to commune with those who we are in covenant with, I think we miss the heart of what Paul had around his people. We miss the love that Paul had for the people of Ephesus and therefore the love that we should have for one another. Paul was bold and humble and he ministered through tears. Lastly, Paul displays faithfulness in the face of death. Faithfulness in the face of death. Paul continues in his address to tell them that he was faithful in the midst of trials, verse 19, that he is innocent of the blood of all, verse 26, and that even through, through many plots made against him of the Jews, he persisted, even through tears, but he was persisting in all humility and serving. We see that in verse 19. He goes on to tell them what the Spirit is leading him to do in the next journey of his ministry. And surprise, surprise, it's more trials and difficulty for Paul. The Spirit is following up on the words of Christ when Christ told Ananias who was going to go and speak to Paul, the first person who got word of Paul's conversion, the, the, the Lord through a vision says to Ananias, I go to him for I must show him how much he would suffer for my name. The Holy Spirit is making good on those arguments, but that suffering, that suffering is done through joy and through faithfulness in our obedience to the commands of Christ. He goes on to tell them that he is going to Jerusalem. He states in verse 22 that he intends to go to Jerusalem and he, he, he does so constrained and bonded in the spirit. In verse 23, Paul says that he does not know what fate awaits him there. Paul is more than aware of those who are in Jerusalem that oppose, do not approve of the type of ministry he's been doing as of late namely ministering unapologetically to the Gentiles. There are many in Jerusalem who would condemn him for this. He's well aware of this. They do not approve of what he's been doing among the Gentiles. He's been preaching a gospel that is both Jewish and Christian. He is, he, he is fully a Jew, yet, yet turning people to the way. And not just among the Jews, but the Gentiles. He's bringing the Gentiles in as well. Many people do not approve of this. And he goes on to to state that the Spirit has told him that imprisonment and afflictions, plural, are awaiting him there. That it's not just he's going to go and he's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be uh, painful, but then he'll move, move on and it'll be great. There is afflictions and imprisonment perpetual waiting for him there. Why then? Why go? Why do something as ineffective, seemingly, as going as a, something as ineffective as going and being imprisoned in Jerusalem that seems to have no point. Well, verse 24 says this. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value nor, any, nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's why he wants to go. The Spirit's telling him, go here, he, he knows the only purpose that the Spirit's telling him to do anything would be to go and to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That is his mandate. He's going. R regardless if it's in chains or not, he's going to testify. This whole time, he's been going to testify. And he came to Jerusalem from Damascus to testify. He went from Jerusalem to Antioch to testify. He went from Antioch on his first, second, now his third missionary journey to testify. He is going to testify about the gospel of God and of the grace of God. Why do this? 
Why do all of it? It is, in fact, to testify. Paul's last missionary journey is going to be entirely in chains. He's going to be bound in Jerusalem, and he's going to take from governor to governor to king to to king. Eventually, we know through history that he stands before Caesar himself, the leader of the known world at this uh, this portion of history. He stands before him, and he gets to do what? Testify. He gets to testify. All the while, he did what he did and what he had to do from the moment Christ saved him on the road to, to Damascus, he testified that this Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. That is what he's going to testify. Compared to that, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and testifying about him to, to others, he counted his life of little value. Paul considered faithfulness greater than life. Paul cares a little for his own comfort in the face of the possibility of declaring God's glory to those who are the leaders of the Roman world. Paul cares a little for his own comforts, but throws himself at the mercy of God, knowing that if this is how I should go, testifying to the, the gospel and the grace of God, then may I go. He desires to obey far more than he desires to be comfortable. He is held captive by the Spirit and is determined to go to Jerusalem. He believed that Jerusalem was going to get him to Rome, and he believed that Rome was eventually going to get him to Spain, where he really wanted to go, where the gospel had not been aimed to this point. He also was very aware that he may die along this journey, and that he may be imprisoned, but on the off chance that he could go farther than anyone else had gone yet with the gospel, he was ready to meet those odds. You see, Paul wanted to obey more than he wanted to to live. To Paul, obedience was more satisfying and more necessary than air. He wanted to obey more than he wanted to breathe. He wanted to live off the, the bread that is the word of God more so than he did off the physical bread that we have here that we can eat. Paul gave of himself. He did not demand comfort. Can we say this about our own efforts in obedience? Is our lives bound up in what God has called us to do? And the the mandates that we have from scripture, are they what our lives are revolving around or is it other things? Is it comfort? Is it pleasantries? Is it luxuries? Is it safety? Is it whatever we want to put there? What, in fact, is the, the things that our life is bound to, if not the mandate to testify to the gospel and grace of God? There are going to be things in this life that you are going to know that you should be doing that are incredible hard. It's going to be incredibly hard for you to do. And yet, regardless, God is going to tell you to go and to do it as if your very existence depended on it. So when that time comes, will you do what is hard or will we do what is comfortable? We're always going to have an option. Obey, do what is hard, Disobey and do what is comfortable. What will we do when that time comes? Do not be content, brothers and sisters, with anything else than other than what the Spirit has bonded you to. That said, I want to be very clear about something. Make sure that it is the Spirit that is binding you to it and not the things that your flesh wants to bind you to. There are things that you may think, I I have to do this, I must do this, and yet, is that really the Spirit binding you to it or is that just really what you and your flesh want to do? discern, go to the word of God so that it may be clear and then have the spirit bind you to the good things that he has for you 
and then obey with joy, even in the face of death. Don't be content with anything else. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Paul is bound by the spirit. He's not bound by his flesh. Make sure we're following likewise. He's bound to go to Jerusalem. And there he would be bound. He's bound by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he'll be bound with rope to go to Rome. And so in the light of him being bound by the spirit to, to go, he must first do what is very difficult for all of us to do because we are relational creatures at our core. And that is to say goodbye. So, which brings us to our second point, the pain of gospel goodbyes. Paul tells these brothers that he will most likely not see them again. He's done many things with them. He's, He's ministered among them. He served them. He's cared for them. He shed tears with them, even through trials. And among them, he's gone about proclaiming the kingdom. And yet he tells them, you will most likely not see me again. Verse 25. Quick application for you and I. There, there may come a day when we all need to say goodbye to one another. That day may come. And Shocker, it will come in the form of death eventually. Regardless if we're here or otherwise, we are going to have to say goodbye to, to one another only then to be reunited on the, on the day of glory. So there may come a day when we all need to say goodbye to one another, but let our goodbyes be biblically informed, bound by the spirit and not our own flesh. But if they are bound by the spirit, then that, good, then that goodbye must occur. And so do so like this. Do so like we just had read to us. Like I'm going to talk about here in a moment. Goodbyes should be this difficult because life among these people were this good. And as a result of this being really difficult, Paul urges them and gives them commission. He, he commends them. He gives them a charge. He says um, that he, he, he urges them to watch over their own, own selves as those in their care as elders of the church. He says this in verse 28. We are, it's no shocker here that we're big local church people, right? We love the local church. We think God loves the local church. We are local church people. We're big local church guys here at Redemption Baptist Church. We love the church. We think that this is an inexhaustible and useful resource for covenant membership is the church, a community of accountability and a regular gathered worship around biblically founded things in, in worship of God Almighty. This is an inexhaustible, unending, useful resource for the Christian is the local church. We talk about these things a lot in our sermons, our conversations, our equipping our lessons. We talk about the church. And I mean, I mean a lot, okay? We talk about this a lot because we think it's really relevant. There's a good reason for this. We see that God speaks about his church often throughout scripture. And the love that we should have for them is also communicated often throughout the New Testament. We see in our passage today a care that Paul displays for the local church at Ephesus. Why? Does God, and by extension, Paul, care for this church so much? Why does God care about his local and global churches so much? Because he paid for it with his own blood. By the blood of Jesus, we have been redeemed from sin unto salvation. By the blood of Christ and Christ alone, we are set free from comforts and constraints of this world and are continuously renewed in our mind into the image of Christ. 
the blood that was shed on our behalf that we sang about earlier, the, the, uh, the, the blood that has washed away our sins, the blood that has redeemed, the blood that allows us to go boldly before the throne of, uh, of grace, the blood of Jesus, this perfectly divine, perfectly human man who was in fact God from the, crea- from the beginning and prior to the creation of the known universe. God in human flesh shed this blood. And this blood secures us. This blood purchased not just individuals, but a church. This gospel, this understanding of Christ shed blood on the church is what unites the church that has been purchased by it. It is by the blood of Jesus that we we are now, as Peter, an apostle to Christ, and one of his disciples said in 1 Peter 2.9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into our marvelous light. If you're looking for an identity as a Christian, it's in that verse. This is our identity. We are in Christ. We are a holy race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his possession. What did he, he use for, in order to have a possession, you have to purchase it. What was it purchased by? It was purchased by the blood of Christ. That is why God cares so much for his church. That is why we care so much for his church because God, through his blood, has secured it. He has bound it to his spirit and he is leading it ever still. But one part of loving the church is protecting her well. And that's what Paul communicates to these guys. He warns them of the danger of those who do not care about God's people as God does. In verse 29 through 31, we see false teachers Uh, Paul warns against false teachers that will come in and pray on the church for the purposes explicitly of leading God's people astray. This was true at the time of Paul. It's been, been true ever since. And it's true of us now that there will be, in fact, people that come into the people of God for the purpose of leading God's people astray. Has been, was always, is now, will continue to be. That is the truth. Because God cares so deeply for his church, the devil hates it so much. Sin wants to corrupt and destroy it. We have, in fact, enemies, not of this world, but of principalities of darkness. Those enemies are looking to get footholds in God's church. In our country, we have institutions like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Rice, all of these, George Washington Universities, all of these, highly prestigious institutions of higher education now all founded and started as Christians, Christian institutions of higher learning committed to the inerrancy of God's word and the proper preaching of the gospel and equipping saints for the work of the ministry. All of those have left the gospel behind long ago. Now they are breeding grounds for those who would reject God and do what is right in their own eyes, as we saw in, as we can read about in Judges 21, 25. They do what is right in their own eyes and they propagate these messages and it's a breeding ground of sorts. R.C. Sproul helpfully points out uh, what we see in the Old, Old Testament. We see that the greatest, and he says, the greatest threat to Israel was not Egypt or the Philistines or Syrians, or Babylonians, but the false prophets and false teachers in the midst of people who took the truth of God and twisted it and distorted it and carried away the people into idolatry. Those were the greatest threats to the people of Israel, not these enslavements and, and these, uh, th- this exile that they were subject to. In truth, it was those who were w- within. 
Malachi 2, 7 through 9 says, for the lips of the priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. But you, talking to the priest, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble in your instruction and by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. These priests failed. And it was the greatest threat to the people of Israel was the leading away and the twisting of the scripture and the false prophets that were among them. Jesus, his earthly, the greatest earthly enemies that he has, obviously he's fighting against, he's fighting a battle that we can barely comprehend. Jesus was in his ministry, in his death and in his resurrection. However, Jesus's greatest earthly enemies were the clergy of his day, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The gospels are riddled with Jesus rebuking these men who know not the scriptures nor the power of God, as he said in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. Yet are leading these people, God's people, his chosen people, Israel, astray. Church history even bears witness to the fact that those who bring unbelief into the, the church are not the secular professors, but it is those who within the church have, have a misguided view of the inerrancy of, of God's word and the twisting of scripture that they then propagate to others. It's not the secular professors and secular institutions. It's the seminary professors who make, who make things more difficult for the church of God, who deny the resurrection, who, who uh, they, uh, uh, they want to lower the cross and train ministers of a new generation to deny the essence of biblical tr truth. Those are more of an affront throughout church history than actually secularism is. And among his final written words, Paul includes in, uh, in 2 Timothy uh, 4, 9 and 10, he talks about this. He talks about Damas, who, who has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Christians for Dalmatia, or for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. In his final words, there's even the sense that those who are among him have now gone out and they're in love with this present world. We have to ask our, ourselves, the, oh, if Paul commends and, and strengthens the faith of the Ephesian elders with his last words to them here, Titus is actually in uh, Ephesus, continue to work in preaching the, uh, I'm sorry, Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus, continue to work and preach the gospel, raise up elders and, 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 and plant churches. He's, he's doing that. So we have to ask, if Paul is saying Luke alone is with me, where are the people from Ephesus that cared this deep that we're about to read about in 36 to 38 that followed him to the beach, knelt with him, prayed and kissed and hugged and were shedding tears because they would never see him again? Well, why didn't they come to him in Rome? Were they, were they dishonest? Well, it's not honest to say that everyone who is not with Paul was in sin. Right? It's not intellectually or biblically honest to, to say that. The truth is, he says, Titus went to Dalmatia. That's a good thing. Paul sent him there. Titus was in Dalmatia and then moved on uh, to Crete, the island of Crete, where, he would, where Paul writes to him in the book of Titus, the letter to Titus, that he is then to put in order what remains on the island of Crete. He's going and he's going to these various churches and he's setting up biblically strong, healthy churches. But the truth is we do in fact have some idea of the fate that befell the church at, at Ephesus and it's not all bright. Some of it's very bleak. In Revelation 2, verse four and five, it seems that they lost their first love. John rec records of the, the words of our Lord as it's communicated to him and he records them in two, uh, Revelation chapter two, verses four 
uh, four through uh, five, and he says this, but I have this against you, I being like the Lord, okay? Not John, but I, I the Lord have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So this is the faith that befell Ephesus. They weren't, this happened. The thing Paul is warning against happened. False teachers came in, or at least weak teachers came in and did not hold people to the fire of God's word. And things began to slip. Things began to fail. Things began to, to be lax. And as a result, Jesus is saying here, you need to repent as a church. Like as a church, you at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You've abandoned your first love. Repent or I'm gonna remove you as one of my lampstands in that area unless you repent. Now there is good news, brothers and sisters. Even for Ephesus, there's good news. We read about Ignatius, who was a disciple of John. Uh, in, the, uh, in the first century, he was a disciple of John. He did great things in the second century, immediately after the time of the apostles. He, he wrote in a letter to Ephesus that there was apparently a revival and the Ephesus church did repent. And it was a good and godly church that did great things for the Lord. And they were restored to orthodoxy. He wrote this, he said, in your concord and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung. And man by man, becoming a choir, the being harmonious in love and taking, and taking up the song of God in unison, you may with one voice sing to the Father through Jesus Christ so that he may both hear you and perceive by your works that you are indeed members of his son. There's good news for Ephesus. Repentance did happen. False teachers came in and then they went out and they repented and they trusted in the Lord. They were restored to orthodoxy and good things happened. But guys, there's no biblical, as far as we can see, there's no biblical evidences of this church, this healthy church where we're remaining to this day. And then that letter, do you want to know what, what Ignatius continues to remind them and warn them of? It's the same thing Paul's saying here. False teachers. You can go and Google Ignatius epistle to the Ephesians. Letter to the Ephesians by Ignatius. Google that. You can read it now. We have it preserved. And he is warning about the same thing Paul is warning these brothers here of. False teachers who are going to come in are going to prey on the church. He's warning them of this very same thing. Clearly, the protection of God's church is of the utmost value to Paul, of value to God, and should be of value to us. We should protect it by our works here in, in one another's lives and by the preaching of the gospel. We are to protect it. We must be about the same cause. Do not be so worried, brothers and sisters, uh, about the dangers of this secular world we live in. It's easy for us to see when they don't fall in line with scripture. It's pretty clear. Don't worry so much about those, but beware of those who disguise themselves in sheep clothing but in reality will lead the people of God astray to slaughter. Fear, don't fear. Be cautioned against that. Fear God and protect the gospel. And that's our mandate. Paul urges these brothers to remember the spiritual inheritance of the saints that is theirs in Christ Jesus. This inheritance is not one of gold or silver or apparel, the things that Paul said, I, I wanted not for these things. Paul cared about the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus, an inheritance that cannot be squandered or stolen, is the rich treasure of, in fact, knowing Christ, knowing him as Lord. 
and enables us to have such a deep devotion to God and to our neighbor that we can live up to the words as Paul commands and, and tells them to, to be reminded of, it, and that is, it is better to give than to receive. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about this, but the inheritance that he tells them to remember is directly connected to the, the phrase, it is better to give than to receive. We have received the inheritance of eternal life. Therefore, all of these other things, gold, silver, apparel, even our lives are nothing in comparison. So let's give of those. In closing, there's just a few things I want to say here. Verse 36 through 37 is their final stage of goodbye. Paul has said what he wanted to say. He concludes even with the words of Christ, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, it says, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the, the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They walked all the way to where he was going with him. There's prayer, there's weeping, there's embracing, there's sorrow, there's departure. They stand there on the shores of Miletus, weeping, not just for their beloved apostle and missionary, but for what he gave them. The word of God is what he gave them. What did he remind them that he was unashamed to do? To proclaim the full counsel of God. That is what he gave them. He gave them both as he would later, or that he would write to the Thessalonians, he gave them the gospel of God and he gave them his own life. He preached, proclaimed the full counsel of God through tears at times, through various trials to them. And this is what they're losing. They're deeply grateful for this, but they know they're not gonna get any more. Now it's gonna be up to them and God. <laughs> And so they're sorrowful. They're not going to see him. They have, he has given them this great treasure trove of the word of God, their greatest and dearest treasure. Brothers and sisters, in closing, I want to say this. Let us live together in community in such a way that there are painful goodbyes on the other side of this. Let us live in such a way that when we inevitably have to say goodbye to one another, it hurts. It should hurt because life should be that good. The life that Christ calls his people to live is meant to be lived this way, is meant to be lived as Paul describes it here. He's talking to these elders. There is much principles that you and I can glean from this text. We are meant to minister the word to one another, pray for one another, stir one another up to love and good works, all for the glory of God and God alone. And living that way will guarantee you that gospel's goodbyes will in fact be painful. They will be hard. They will be difficult. But make the goodbyes hard and make the living sweet by living and loving one another as Paul and these elders lived and loved one another. And may we submit to God and acknowledge him in all of our, our ways, considering faithfulness better, to be better than life. Will you guys pray with me? And then we're gonna sing and continue our worship this morning. Let's pray. God, we are deeply grateful for you. There are a few things in this life that we can even begin to put gratitude towards like the communication of your word to us. It is by your word that you have, have redeemed and are reforming and conforming us to the image of Christ. And it is by your word that we now mold our, our lives around. Would you, God, please 
Remember us, allow us to live in community with one another, enabling us to be faithful in all that we do. And may we live even through tears with those around us that we've covenanted with. And when and if the goodbyes come, may they be hard because the life was so sweet. We love you. Be with us this morning as we continue to sing. And may we, in fact, even through, even through trials, even through imprisonment and, and hardships and trials that are inevitably going to come as a result of our faithfulness, may we remember and count faithfulness better than life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.